Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mindshifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Wednesday, May 10th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who chooses to join us here as we spend the next couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered I say that because these tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say Start Here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? That chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download from that page the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. All you need to do is click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you do that, before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you will see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. You can also see on that page a link to download a whole host of audio files of shows just like this one where people have been stepped through that worksheet process and if you choose to listen to those they can serve as a powerful tutorial for you to help you get maximum benefit from these tools in the shortest amount of time possible and we help people do all of those things soon and often primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they use these tools in their lives 
and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, please do so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581. And once you call that number, if you press 1 on your phone, it will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I will see that you have a comment or question and turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. We appreciate when people do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our our intention with this work, which is to be of service. If you are listening in the archives or you just choose not to call in live, you can still submit a comment or a question or an answer or a testimonial through email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org and you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at whyagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n dot o-r-g. So please let us know how this is landing for you, if it's raising questions, if it's answering questions for you, if it's useful, if there's a specific set of questions that would help you if we explored those questions to get better results in your life or to get more out of these tools, we'd love to hear from you. We had a support group last night and the group decided to go into a a fairly deep dive of the ancient Aramaic and the story of Mary Magdalene and um, it was the most recent offering from Dale Allen Hoffman who's been studying this for uh, probably close to three decades now. Um, maybe only two, but he is um, he's thoroughly devoted to this set of issues, these languages, the the spiritual teaching, and as Dr. Michael Rice has done, Dale has made the commitment not to be an academic scholar in this area and leave it at that, but to use his scholarly efforts and his academic studies as a way to lead him to the practices that can improve his quality of life. So he is one of those people who at various times in our history would have been called a mystic or a seeker or a shaman. Um, you know, the Christians have had some mystics over the years. I think um, Anthony DeMello would fit that description. I think Guy Finley would. Um, And by use of the term mystic, I simply mean somebody who is studying this work through the application of the work. Applying these personal inquiries and or tools and techniques directly in their lives 
J.M., uh, Mark David Hammer, who is now goes by the name J.M., who channeled the way of mastery, he would certainly fit that description, in my opinion. Um, these are people who... One of the things that Dale Ellen Hoffman was saying last night is he refuses to nail his furniture to the floor. And by that he's referring to his beliefs. That he works to stay open and flowing. It reminds me of the line from the the movie um, where God was played by um, uh, the female singer. Um, Isn't it ironic? Her name, it will come to me. And uh, the angel, Michael, the archangel in that movie, was telling people, listen, don't have beliefs. Beliefs are too hard to change. Beliefs cause all kinds of problems. Have an idea, (laughs) right? Have all the ideas you want. But don't don't have a belief. A belief roots you to the ground and leaves you unmovable and... Um, and you're supposed to be moving. You're supposed to be growing and learning. You're supposed to be expanding in your creative capacity. Uh, always. And the belief will only always and forever block me from learning and growing and expanding. Whereas an idea and a question is the path to growth and expansion. So, um, in the discussion last night, um, we had uh, one or two people who were relatively new to the concept that Mary Magdalene was a great teacher. She was not an outcast and a prostitute. She was one of the disciples and perhaps um, the most beloved disciple and perhaps uh, the author of um, the original John Gospels. But, you know, all of that is conjecture. It's it's possibilities, um, various probabilities, and yet, the core of the message remains loving, it remains hopeful, it remains expansive, and it remains focused on each and every one of us doing our own personal work, stepping into our own power to choose only love, to extend only love our own ability to grow in awareness of our own true nature. So, in that discussion, uh, Dale was again talking about the series of books by Timothy Freak and Peter Gandy and how unusual it is in books like that to talk about these things from ancient history that some would call spiritual, to have so many references and footnotes and citations to the uh, source material that, you know, um, fully a a third of the pages in in 
most of their books is um, dedicated to giving you the resources, the references that you would need to go explore these source materials for yourself. And that is um, not what you commonly find in books where people talk about religious ideas or spiritual ideas, uh, often even philosophical ideas. But Timothy Freak and Peter Gandy are committed to staying open and um, avoiding conclusions unless they are entertaining them as what-ifs because they understand that for much of this work and much of the things that went on in our world two, three, four, five, ten thousand years ago, we can't know exactly what it was that happened and or what exactly was meant by those languages because languages change over time. And we had a discussion, a bit of a discussion, about how our own language has changed dramatically in just the years that most of us have been alive. Certain words have been created. Certain other words have changed meaning dramatically. Certain other words retain one meaning but can also be used for five or six other meanings. And if you are not living in the culture and if you don't understand the colloquialisms, you would be lost trying to understand some of the conversations that people have and they're not lost at all. They're communicating quite effectively with each other and that you know there's the idea of slang there's the idea of colloquialisms there's the idea of context so that was all part of our discussion and um, the hour or so of the presentation that we listened to from Dale Allen Hoffman and he can be found at com. And we have plenty of time for comments or questions. Our second hour today is going to be a pre-recorded hour from Michael and Jeannie, or Michael, I guess. It is The Healing Power of Forgiveness. It's an interview that Michael did with Lou Corletto. So, how can we support you today? What is on your mind? I have been reading from the book, A Walk in the Physical. And we talked about the importance of awakening by releasing your beliefs. The article, the essay in this book is titled, Awakening through freedom from belief. Freedom from belief leads to awakening. That's essay number 60. 
We also read Choose Joy and Seeking Truth Beyond the Intellect. And the responsibility is ours. And we had a bit of a discussion about, and this 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 really gets people at different times, the concept that you need do nothing. And I know that when I first heard that, it just kind of rankled inside of me. It, it went against everything I'd been taught about duty and responsibility, responsibility to my family and myself and my country and even my school. But the 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 distortion that can happen. I just flashed on, and I think I've told this story before, but I flashed on an event that happened when I was in college. And if this was a freak one-off event and nothing like this ever happened, I wouldn't use the story in a in a discussion like this. But these kinds of things happen on a regular basis. The story is that I was coming home to the dormitory I lived in late one night. I was I was a senior in, in college and I was the resident assistant for the second floor of this building. And there were about 30 residents on my floor and about 30 residents on the on the first floor. And there was another student who was um the resident assistant for the first floor. And I'd been away late into the night over at the computer lab working because I was also teaching a couple classes to lower classmen and I had to do that work after the computer lab was closed. And So I came back to the dorm to find the hallway filled with angry students. They were residents of our dormitory and they had bats and they had white athletic socks filled with rocks they were swinging around and they had um, uh, they had a plan to go and attack violently physically with bats and rocks and socks and other students on this campus. It was a riot in the making. And as I walked in the door, I was shocked. These were these were my fellow students, my fellow dorm mates. Uh, the, the dorm is small enough that it's almost like a fraternity. And I knew most of these people were reasonable, gentle souls. And yet here they were, whipped up to a frothy foam, about to head out. It was, you know, at the time I wouldn't have said, Anything other than, boy, it's lucky I was there. Now I would say, you know, it was a divine intervention to have me come back to the dorm at that time. And I said, what's going on? And they said, you know, John or whatever his name was for the, the first floor, our resident assistant, you know, he's going to lead us and we're going over to this other dorm and we're going to, you know, crack some skulls. And I just said, oh, really? Let me have a talk with John for a minute. <laughs> And and this is just a story about how how quickly it can go awry 
when we hold on to a belief or we hold on to the concept that we must do this or that and we have to have, you know, allegiance to our dorm and our group and our students or our school or our town or our country or our race, and it just goes off the rails so quickly when we lose focus of the higher priorities. And for me, for, for my entire life, one of the highest priorities has always been love, acceptance, gentleness, respect, compassion. Use whatever word you want. So I, you know, like I said, it was just, I, at the time I would have said it was lucky. Now I would say it was kind of divine intervention that I was there at that time. And I'd been raised by the parents I'd been raised by who both of my parents would have calm heads in a crisis. I've said before, I, I grew up with the idea that when something really serious happened, a car accident or a personal injury to somebody or a big weather event, I downloaded from watching my parents. I may have heard them say this or it might have just formulated in my head because they both acted this way. I downloaded the phrase, this Whatever this is, this crisis, this is way too important to panic about. Take a breath, get focused, and then take an action. So it was just a blessing for everyone involved that I showed up in that dorm at that time. And I went into John's room and said, Hey, John, can I have a conversation with you away from the madding crowd? <laughs> and I said, John... Um, what's happening? And he was all puffed up. Yeah, we're going to work. And he just was spewing the same lines that I'd been hearing in the hallway from all these other students. And I said, John, do you realize what's happening here? And do you realize you're going to ruin your college career and you're going to lead these people to get arrested for battery and, and that this is silliness? And And within a few minutes of just some clear talk away from the crowd, he got it and he diffused and he could see the perspective. But when you lose that perspective, when you're focused on, I have to do this and I have to live up to my responsibilities and, I'm, and you're blindly following something as a belief or a dogma or out of a passion that's unbridled, it can go off the rails, which is why a phrase like you need do nothing can be so powerful. And I don't need to do anything. And ironically enough, the more I step into that realization, the more I realize it isn't another belief that says I should just do nothing and be a bump on a log. It is an invitation for me or anyone who picks up the invitation or accepts it to explore the possibility that they are free to choose to teach only love each moment. They don't need to do anything, and so everything they do, they can choose. And they can choose for love. They can choose for peace. They can choose for healing. They can choose for compassion. They can choose for gratitude each new present moment. Awareness of this and application of that observation in one's life 
can excel your move you along your path exponentially. So here is an essay number 65 titled, We Are All Family. Remember the story I was just telling you. These were all students on the same campus, and they were going to march to a, a neighboring building filled with students at the same campus. And they were going to do serious violence and destruction of property simply because somebody got offended, somebody took offense to something that was said or done earlier in the day. And they just poured their mind energy into these thoughts about how they have no right to do that to us and that's disrespecting us and we can't let them do that. And it was basically street mentality. So here's this essay. We are all family essay number 65 from the book a walk in the physical the essay reads us versus them thinking currently prevails in our society because of the physical rule set of our reality life on this planet evolved in a kill or be killed environment and it was physically beneficial to ensure one's self and one's group succeeded even at the expense of other individuals or groups. Our cultures enshrine the importance of supporting one's group, whether it be a tribe, a sports team, a nation, or especially one's family. And yet, where we truly come from, we are all family. We are all intrinsically connected to one another. That statement is not just a nice-sounding platitude. It is a statement of actual fact. Spiritually, all of us are a part of one incredible whole. We are all not only connected, we are part of one another. This is true no matter what role we temporarily come and play on earth. This is true of every single person we meet. The cashier behind the register at the grocery store, our best friend, the person collecting our trash, the worker in China who made our clothes, even the next-door neighbor's dog, we're all part of one another. Thus, we do not need to differentiate between our people and other people. It may have been natural to do so in the context of our long history on earth, but it is not fundamental to who we are. Our true nature is one of love. In fact, we've come here to this place partly so that we can explore what that means and to learn how to truly love everyone more fully even within a rich and challenging context. That means learning to genuinely extend love and accept others, even when they are not part of our immediate group. The next time you interact with someone who seems like a stranger to you, take a moment to be present with them and try to peer into what they really are. Can you drop all of your preconceptions, all of your identity labels, 
and truly see them? Can you sense that you are indeed connected to them? Can you feel the wonderfulness of their unique presence? If you look close enough, past all the ideas of your human mind, you may just sense their brightness, and it will speak to something in you too. For none of us are truly separate from one another. We are all family. And as I read that, I remember that in the way of mastery, as I was reading it last year in a very slow and deliberate way with commentary, I remember talking about how occasionally it would say, here's an exercise. And sometimes, to my eye and ear, there would be exercises kind of hidden in the text. And there's one exercise that directly speaks to the essay we just read. And it's the idea that you can take a breath and get centered in yourself before you interact with any other person. And you can recognize there is no such thing as a stranger. And that the person that you're about to interact with is your brother and sister, is connected to you deeply truly, in any way that actually matters. So I just thought I would flip here quickly through the book to see if it would pop into into my uh, vision. But it's at, at the breath, before interacting with anybody, So that message, I remember uh, having discussions with people about this uh, killer be killed environment and um, the book that Darwin wrote about the uh, origin of the species is the title of the book and how so many people came away from that saying, yes, the, the world has evolved with survival of the fittest. And how thoughts like that, that survival of the fittest is really the law upon which life is governed on this planet, is a lie. It's, it's cherry-picking a few things in that book. But anybody who studies nature knows that while there is some of this, the biggest and the strongest when they have a fight with somebody that's weaker, um, the biggest and the strongest survive. There's a little bit of that. And at the same time that's true, think about an ant colony. Think about a flock of birds. Think about a school of fish. Think about a herd of bison. Think about a pod of whales and on and on and on. It is cooperation. It is collaboration that's the true 
strength of moving things forward on this planet. Think about the building of a skyscraper. No one person ever built a skyscraper. No one person ever built a city. These bridges are not built by single people. They are built through the cooperative effort of teams of people and sometimes teams interacting with other teams. I'm pretty sure the uh, there's another truth about that book. It's niggling at the back of my mind right now that the book is The Origin of the Species by Darwin. And there's another truth that's been cited multiple times about how many times the word love is cited in Darwin's book or the concept of love. It's far more than you would imagine because you don't hear about that. You don't hear about Darwin wrote about love as the power that moves everything and that because you hear oh yeah Darwin origin of the species yeah survival of the fittest the dog eat dog killer be killed this is another reason why you know it's it's important when you can when you have the uh, uh, the desire or the passion to really know something to try it out for yourself and or to go to the source material as often as you can. So, you know, for instance, um, the books by Timothy P- uh, Freak and Peter Gandy, and instead of just listening to someone like Dale Allen Hoffman, who's read Timothy Freak and Peter Gandy's books and who's connected with Timothy and gotten to be friends with him and, Instead of just listening to what Dale says about this, it's a really good thing to get some of those books and at least read the books that Dale was reading. And then, occasionally, you may be motivated to look at you know, the one-third of the book that's all bibliography and references. You might be motivated to get one of those books and dig in a little deeper to see you know what was the source material that Timothy Freak and Peter Gandy were using i remember one time i was reading a guy finley book and in a footnote there was a a reference to a krishnamurti book and i just my my spirit lit up and i just thought i knew it i knew there was so much similarity between some of the phrases that Guy Finley uses and some of those things I read over and over again as I read and reread Krishnamurti's books back in the 80s. When we're reading the same source material, we're going to you know, resonate with some of the same things. We're going to express them slightly differently. Each of us you know, is going to have a slightly different lens. But the idea is we are all family, and cooperation and collaboration is far more useful, far more productive, far more expansive of life than survival of the fittest, than my group above every other group. There was a 
a very long and and repetitive and and not very uh, well-written book, in my opinion, by a gentleman who's no longer with us. But the book is called Redemption. And yet in that book, the point that he made over and over again is just the point I'm making here. That cooperation and collaboration are far more useful and productive than the competition model. And um, he he walked that walk. He created um, an organization that brings people together to share with each other collaboratively. And as far as I know, that's still going. And they have meetings four or five times a year where they bring the leaders in various industries together to donate their time, to mentor people who are the bright minds who want to go into an industry, who want to learn collaboration and cooperation and building teams and and all of those, um, a couple of those names may come to me before the end of, of our time here, but um, I, I probably should uh, <laughs> I should look that up before I move on because the book was titled Redemption, if I remember correctly. Yes, the book was titled Redemption: The Cooperation Solution. And the author was Bernie Dorman, D-O-H-R-M-A-N-N. And um, just to be clear, I am not recommending the book because he was not a writer by trade. And there are many, many, many repetitions that get rather boring in there. But the essence of it is some really deep research into how cooperation and collaboration are far more beneficial to the individual and the group than the competition model. So uh, we have time for a comment or a question, 20, 20 minutes left. The Cooperation Revolution by Bernie Dorman. The title of the book is Redemption. And it was copywritten in uh, 2012. And it might be CEO Space was the group that he uh, founded and, and used to help walk the, the walk of collaboration and cooperation in business. Um, so, uh, yeah, CEO Space and Bernie Dorman. So if we haven't sparked any comments or questions, um, I'll read one more essay before we move on to the, maybe two, to the second hour today. Um, 
We Are All Family was the last essay, and this next essay is The Gift of Choosing to Be Human. Imagine for a moment that you're absolutely free and absolutely powerful. Imagine that, imagine that nothing can limit you. Nothing is impossible. And nothing can thwart your every desire. Imagine you are everything. You and those who are a part of you are all that is. How would one in that kind of a state truly create and expand? If you were already everything and connected to everyone, how could you expand? How could one in such a state be able to choose something even greater? to be something even greater than oneself. If absolute freedom were already yours, how tantalizing, how tantalizing would it be to have the choice to experience a true challenge? So that if you could fully, personally know unique contrast, deepen your experience, and in doing so you could become even more. How can you know experience if you are already living the experience of being one with everything and connected to everything? From that state of feeling one with everything, understanding you're part of everyone and they're a part of you, it would be quite a challenge to grow and expand. There's no contrast. There's no differences. So how exciting would it be to be able to experience a new level of limitation that you could once again see how well you could exert these incredible powers of choice that you possess? What would it be like to be so free that you could choose to be constrained? One way of thinking about this is to say this is what we really are, you and I and every other human. We really are limitless, absolutely free beings. And in our absolute freedom, we've chosen to participate in a truly incredible experiment to push the very boundaries of freedom and expansion. We've chosen to forget truly are for a while and to be and experience being mortal beings on earth. From the perspective of man, the choice to be frail, challenged, powerless, and decaying can seem almost impossible to comprehend. However, from the perspective of spirit, having the opportunity to actually experience those things and to actually impact others while they are on their own rich journeys, this is an incredibly profound gift. How much greater a gift could be given by the Creator to spirits who are already absolutely free than this ability to fully experience contrast so that they may in fact exercise their freedom even more? They may actually be more than they once were and learn to express that love 
the love that they really are and learn to express it in new and very real ways. I don't know about you, but I never heard anything like this when I was growing up. I never had any thought experiments of this nature presented to me or that tripped through my brain uh, on my own. The next essay is number 67. It's titled True Growth, and it reads, True personal growth is not done in the intellect It is not done through action itself. True personal growth is a change in one's very being. While right ideas and actions do emerge from that, they are not growth in themselves. It is the quality of our intent that must grow, not the correctness of our ideas. Like dream settings, ideas and environments change. What is remains, and what remains and unchanging is us. This is that, you know, Ganga G says, sit and just notice. Sit in your quiet, sit in your meditation, sit in your time of silence, and just notice everything that comes and goes. Everything that comes and goes in your thoughts, everything that comes and goes with the the change in the temperature of the room, everything that comes and goes, the chair you're sitting on will eventually be gone, etc. Just notice everything that comes and goes. And as you exhaust observing everything that comes and goes, what you will be left with is that which never comes and goes, your true self. What remains is your true self. What remains is your consciousness. The consciousness that experiences all of the things that come and go. And it experiences the quality of its ability to make choices from love rather than fear. Too often we believe that we are growing when our ideas change or when we do certain things or when circumstances change. When in fact, what matters is when we change. The forms that we play with, whether they be ideas, sensations, objects, circumstances, beliefs, even bodies, the forms that we play with are temporary. And improving the quality of our intent itself is growth that endures beyond all form. Thus, rather than finding new ideas or simply performing some specific actions, we must strive to actually be more loving. We must strive in every choice to accept personal responsibility, to face our fears, to allow ourselves to be open They use the word vulnerable here. I use the word open, wide open. Stay in allowance. To notice the tendency to resist and shut down and breathe and open to the flow of life and to put others before ourselves. If we truly pursue that every day, 
we will fulfill our purpose for being physical. And as you do that, the next essay is probably a good one to end with today. The next essay says, there's nothing you can truly do wrong. Just let that sink in for a minute. There's nothing you can truly do wrong. How well does that fit with your cultural conditioning and your religious beliefs and or your political beliefs? I remember reading the gospel, the uh, book about the scroll that, that they found that was the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And it's pieces of this scroll. And they don't have the whole thing. And they don't know what they don't have. But here's what they do have. They have these three teachings that come very clearly. The other apostles, the other disciples, said to Mary, teach us what Jesus is telling you in your private times. And so she said, okay. And here are these three things that are in the scroll. Number one, he teaches that there is no such thing as sin. That's right in line with what this essay is about. There is nothing you can truly do wrong. So point number one from the Gospel of Mary Magdala, Jesus taught her and she was aware that there is no such thing as sin the way it's been taught. There may be energy off the mark, but there isn't anything you're going to do to, tr to truly offend the Creator or God or the flow of life. The second thing is, the kingdom of heaven is inside you. You don't need to search outside of yourself for this connection to your source and wisdom and the divine. The kingdom of heaven is within you. And the third point that's in that scroll is that Yeshua would have taught them, make no rules beyond what I've given you. And so if you understand there is no such thing as sin and you understand that the kingdom of heaven is within you, you don't need to go searching outside of yourself, and that the, the primary person who had grown into this and was trying to share it with you said, don't make any other rules, it would be very, very difficult for you to create a church based on sin and repentance and looking to the outside authorities and having all of these rules about what you can and can't eat and do with your body, etc., and your money. So essay number 68, there is nothing you can truly do wrong. The essay reads, you exist, period. If you explore that existence sincerely enough, Past all of your beliefs, you will become aware that your fundamental nature is pure, worthy, and good. You just are something that is unto itself and wondrous. You are the extension of love in form. You are the extension of the creative energy into form. The essay goes on and says, when you as a conscious awareness decided to come into this experience of limitation, it did not fundamentally change what you are. You committed to seemingly being bound to having the human experience, 
Meanwhile, then, within that experience, it was fully understood that you would make choices. It was known that you would have to make very difficult choices. And often those choices would be made under ignorance, fear, and even duress. It was known that you might act out of selfishness. And you might cause pain to others. Even now, then, everything you've ever done is understood. All that is, God, light, love, consciousness, the one mind, all that is, fully understands everything. And so the reasons for your making imperfect choices are always fully understood. Does that mean you should be selfish and cause pain to others? No, of course not. It doesn't, not at all. You've come here to experientially grow so that in fact you can be more effectively loving, more selfless, more fearless, and more powerful for the good. You've come here to actually experientially learn not just how to perform loving actions, but how to be more loving within a rich, complex, challenging context. Selfish or fearful choices do not fulfill that purpose. They are not in alignment with your true nature, and they often lead to eventually having to experience certain other more challenging situations so as to grow past that selfishness and fear. And nevertheless, there is nothing you can truly do wrong. All of your choices, even the, quote, suboptimal, close quotes, choices, are understood completely for what they are. They are your fundamental nature expressing in form. It's you in an experiment to challenge yourself and grow. Your fundamental nature cannot be less than wondrous, no matter what may happen in this play of life. And source, God, light, love, all that is, always, always loves, extends love, and completely accepts you with a profundity that is beyond imagining. In Neil Donald Walsh's conversations with God, Neil is told this too. And then he responds by asking, if there is no punishment, then what prevents people from doing bad things to each other? And the response came, do you need punishment to not do bad things to each other? Perhaps many of us on earth do currently need to believe in consequences to prevent us from harming others because that is where we actually are in our own development. It's a stage of development. And yet, when we are ready, it can be profoundly meaningful to relinquish the fear of judgment and to embrace the unimaginably deep and forgiving love that exists for us. Because when we know that love, we can act out of gratefulness, we can act out of true, deepest desire to do good, to extend that good, to extend that love, to extend our true nature, to be in the act of creation, which is extending and growing. And we do that out of grace, 
rather than out of fear of punishment. We can drop guilt and shame and allow ourselves to shine bright. We can do that knowing that we are always completely loved and accepted no matter what. That will challenge some people's thoughts and beliefs. But that's where we'll leave it for today. We just have a few minutes left. And our second hour is going to be a recording, as I mentioned. Michael and Jeannie are unavailable to do live today. So the second hour will be about the healing power of forgiveness as discussed in an interview Dr. Michael Rice did with Lou Corletto. So I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. This is your second hour. Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. So ladies and gentlemen, I am blessed to have these two beautiful souls join me. We were just talking before we went live about the last time we saw each other in person. And uh, as my, at least my mind does, plays trick. And my, it was like, yeah, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> it's always been a decade. Five years, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, right. So time frames are all, you know, it's all perception anyways. So when I reached out to they responded instantly and said, yeah, so I'm grateful to have them here so they can unpack uh, their wisdom to enlighten me. Yes, selfish. Uh, and as the listening audience, you get to play with us as well. Yeah. Wow. Michael and Jeannie, really, thank you for being here. And and it's I just I just can't believe it's been that long. And the well, honor to be here, and um, uh, and excited, looking forward to see how our wisdom interacts because we're here to learn too. So uh, let's go for it. Right. It's so the fundamental part of your work is is forgiveness, and let's just let's start there. Uh, okay. You know, from from the whole uh, dimensional aspects of that. Like when I grew up, and and as you encounter most of the people that when you first start working with. I'm gathering, still run that paradigm of when I, uh, you know, when I go to forgive, it's outside. I'm forgiving something outside of me. Right. Uh, and so if you would, let's unpack that from the paradigm that most people run. I'm forgiving something outside of me, people, places, things, or events, to then eventually internal and then to the next levels that you guys have masterfully unpacked from the Aramaic tradition. So, Well, as you say that, you know, several decades ago, I've been working with first century Aramaic forgiveness, a la the Aramaic language, uh, directly from the teachings of Yeshua 2,000 years ago. And somebody came up with the name for me, the forgiveness doctor. And I oftentimes shock people by saying, please stop forgiving people. Never forgive anybody ever again, or you're in trouble. Because if you think that somebody outside of you is the cause of what's moving inside of you. You're in denial, and you'll create a totally unnatural condition mm. within yourself mm. of unconsciousness. Mm. Because to believe, to tell my mind that the problem is out there, you made me mad, you made me sad, you made me afraid, you hurt me, that upset me, they disturbed me, means that the upset and disturbance that is moving in me, that can only come from within me, I have to hide from myself. Mm -hmm. I literally create a veil, a barrier over it, 
And I make up a whole construct called perception where I build a world, literally a world, the one that I see, I think I see with my eyes. I build it with my mind, and I build a picture of how that out there is the problem. And then, of course, the Greeks come along and say, well, just forgive them. It's all their fault anyway, but be good, be big about it. Never forgive anybody, but forgive continuously. In other words, understand that forgiveness is nothing to do with letting them off the hook for what's happening inside of you. We've been conned. I mean, the whole world has been conned into letting them off the hook is going to change what's happening inside of me. And if I, you know, if I arrange for seven and a half billion people to walk past my door and I shake their hands and I say, I forgive you, I forgive you, I've, I've done nothing to change what's happening inside of me. In the first century Aramaic language, you'd never be invited to forgive someone else. You'd be handed a tool, which you go inside yourself. You open what was in the ancient teachings was called the veil of the temple, which is the barrier between the unconscious and the subconscious. The temple is your structure, and you find what's in there that's creating the disturbance, and you access it directly and remove it rather than putting it into your brain's image with somebody else and pretending everybody else is the problem. And one of my favorite tongue-in-cheek lines is, you'll notice if you've been through it 87 different times with 42 different people, you're the only one that was there every time. It's about you. It's not about them. But we can create this hallucination called perception where we literally see this whole this hologram. The, the brain generates, the mind generates a hologram, a world that's so detailed. Gee, pictures on the wall and, you know, shelves and lights and, and it's nothing but a hologram produced by the mind. There's no life in it, but that's where most people live. Mm. You've got to collapse that sucker, and forgiveness is about collapsing that false world of perception and opening to the truth of who we are, accessing mm. what's hidden, bringing it forward in the presence of active love, and dissolving it. There's where the forgiveness happens, when the root source, which oftentimes is multi-generational of our pain and trauma, are constructs that are based in pain, those constructs, when brought forward directly, instead of projected into our constructs about others, when that content's brought forward directly in the presence of love, it dissolves. And there's where forgiveness happens. So it's the removal of what doesn't belong in us, not letting somebody else off the hook because it's firing in us again. I, I did listen to your... Um, your introductory video the other day, and I kind of had to smile when, as you were describing, and you know, I haven't been privy to what you've been doing to your body for the last few years, but it sounds like it's been pretty intense. And, and your question was, why is this happening to me again? And, you know, I mean, I feel blessed the universe reserved that title for my book that when I wrote it 30 years ago, uh, when I started looking Nobody had written a book by that title, so it was mine. And, you know, the, the, the fact that we're creators and create out of an unconscious part of ourselves is where the problem is. And forgiveness is about accessing the unconscious part through which we create over and over and over again the things we don't want to face, accessing them directly and removing them from the structure, thereby changing our creative process. Does that fit? Is that any thoughts to add to that? Uh, well, so before Gene, I just wanted to share with the listening okay. audience, I'm going to hit, um, so we're going to stop in this and come back for part two next time because, <laughs> like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, what Michael just laid out succinctly in five minutes, uh, you know, it's been a lifetime of work between these two beautiful people. 
what was just shared in a stream of consciousness, literally, please stop. Well, I'll only, I won't project. I'll need to stop and re-listen to that because the, uh, the refinement of the information, the, not information, the wisdom that's laid out in that last five minutes, the depth and breadth of what's there, period. That alone is a massive game changer. So don't just listen over that and keep going. Listen over that, let it, in, let it penetrate, and then listen again and feel where you feel it. Um, and so again, sorry, Gene, for you to add the wisdom to that. I remember hearing years ago when I first met Michael, I remember hearing this one piece connected to this around forgiveness and relationship. When, isn't it funny, something like, isn't it funny that uh, the other people are the problem, then how come I'm the one with the pain? Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, sorry. So, Gene, please, add Expand, add, play, go somewhere else? <laughs> no, it's fine. And Michael covered it very well in five minutes. <laughs> um, it has been a process. I mean, like, you know, um, we are still working on ourselves. I mean, when we present, you know, this is how you do it. And everybody's like, well, how do you get there? How do you do that? And it's like, you know, we still get triggered and we still have to, you know, do the forgiveness work and we're still working on ourselves and, and moving forward and learning every day. So, you know, it's it's just a process. And it's that a lifetime is, process. Right? Lifetime. Right. Yeah. Uh, mastery is a process, not an event, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, ladies and gentlemen, part of, I, I believe the video Michael's referring to was me sharing part of my story of my uh, uh, taking full responsibility for my life was waking up from victimhood, right? And because at that point, I was fully out in victim consciousness. Uh, things, you know, I attracted these events in my life where I was getting busted up a lot and going through the windshields of a car and getting run over by cars and hit on motorcycles, right? I'm like, uh, slow learner. <laughs> and, and finally sitting there, you know, broken, like evil can evil, busted up multiple times going, all right, this isn't fun. There's got to be something going on here. Uh, and was and there, there a skydiving incident there? Oh, yeah, there's skydiving. <laughs> but I heard that one, though. We, we heard about that when it happened. It was just like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, the beauty of that, the beauty of that for uh, when I share with, with my you know, teaching, when I'm on clients, is uh, to help people remember, like, even that. So it's not only is it not the other people, people are like, oh, you got hurt in skydiving. No, I didn't. I used skydiving as a tool to help me heal, Right. That was an act that I did break my spine, but it was only because I wasn't getting to that part to open up my heart and heal more. Because that's actually where I broke my spine was right where my heart is. Uh, and, and it was that gift of going, hey, how about now? Do you have time now to lay down for five and a half weeks so we can have a conversation, right? <laughs> how about now? Now I don't have time for that. How about now? We'll, we're going to arrange it for you. Yeah, I think the creator gives us, you know, taps on the shoulder and, hey, listen, listen. And then eventually he might give us a two-by-four <laughs> to get our attention. You know, we we did the same thing, you know, um, when COVID came along. And, you know, we went through what it hit the first of 2020 really hard here, first time, you know. and But for us, it was an opportunity for me to look at fear. And, you know, to really work through that process. And, I mean, we the first time we got it, it was like 10 full days of really yuck. But it was an opportunity. And we all came, we both of us came out the other side healthier and better. And we saw some areas in our life that had been issues before that now were not an issue, mm. you know. And so it was really it, using 
what would be called a, an accident or a disease or whatever, and using it for your opportunity to heal internally. Awesome. Right, right. The, so that's the beauty uh, for me, and I know it's a fundamental part of your work, is reminding people that life happens for us and not to us. Right. Yeah. But it's, well, you make a point. Oh, excuse please, me. Go, go no, go, 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 go. Well, I was just going to say you're making the point of, you know, am I ready to lay down for five minutes and listen? We did a, a workshop in a, a high-security prison in Ionia, Michigan, back a couple of years ago. And this is a facility where they bring all of the worst offenders from the state of, Missouri, of uh, uh, Michigan and put them in one old Civil War facility. These guys, the men's prisons, these guys are in there for 25 years to life. Mm. So we did a couple of weeks of workshops. The um, warden of the prison actually came to the workshops, and he mm. just got it, and he was there to really support these prisoners. Mm. So one of our teachers up there went in and did a, a, a series, a support group on forgiveness with the group. And then a, a course we have created called Laws of Living was originally designed for the prison system. So he was going in to teach Laws of Living. And he did an eight-week series, and there's always been a tradition since, since Laws of Living was created 40 years ago. There's been a tradition that the, the uh, inmates that did it had to pay for it. Well, these guys are in there for 25 years to life. You know, they might work in the commissary for a couple hours, and, you know, we still have slavery in America. Prisons, it's legal to do slavery. A lot of big businesses are, are really slavers today still. It's had not been outlawed although there are more and more states doing that. In any event, they might get 25 cents an hour right. for working four hours a day, so they can't pay for it. So we set it up so that they had to do five worksheets a day over the period of the eight weeks, and that was their ticket into Laws of Living. Nice. The day the course started, every man showed up and had exactly the same excuse for not having the five worksheets a day. Mm. Now, these are guys that are in their cells, unless they're, you know, working in the commissary for a couple hours or, you know, whatever. They're in their cells 23 out of 24 hours, seven days a week. They didn't, they didn't have time reason? to do the worksheet. <laughs> they were too busy. So, so, you know, there's a second point. You said don't roll over that first five minutes. Stay, be with this one, everybody. I'll tell you that after 50 years of working with people with this work and handing it to people, this worksheet process is free, and people get so excited about it, but when they start to confront mm. what's hidden in them, and these are multi-generational patterns that create or, or contain so much trauma that most people turn away, and, and busyness is the first drug they use. Hostility is the next one. Hostility is the next one. It's, you know, people talk about hostility as an emotion. My offering is hostility is not an emotion. It's an in, internally produced chemical anesthetic that keeps us from dealing and feeling our pain. Mm, nice. And when you start to apply forgiveness, the first thing that goes is the hostility. Nice. And then you start to drop into deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, if you go back to Yeshua 2,000 years ago, he says, take care of the heart, for out of it are the issues in life. He doesn't say, take care of the other guy. The heart in that language would be what we would today call the unconscious. Mm. Take care of what is unconscious mm. in you because that's where the energetic accumulation is from generations and generations of dissociation and suppression. Mm. 
And the more we suppress something, the more power we put into it, the higher the amplitude is of the energetic wave that radiates out to us that resonates and pulls somebody into play with us. You know, we're, we're like gravity. Whatever we hold creates a gravitational pull that pulls somebody in to do that to me. And, of course, if I play the game of this isn't mine, they made me, I'm in denial, my mind predict, creates a picture of how they're the problem. And you've got to collapse that picture. What we, what we resist persists, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. This is going to be a nine-week series, by the way. <laughs> it can be right. a two-year series, Lou. Whatever it takes. That. Whatever it takes, we're here for it. Let's unpack that. So what I would, uh, what I would ask and request is for the listening audience, because uh, I, I love and fully resonate with the, the multi-generational. So it's not genetic as it is energetic. It's stored genetic, but it's not genetic from the place of the traditional part of I have this stuff and I'm trapped in forever and I'm screwed. Right. Oh, versus it's just coded in the memory cells. Uh, And so how the first of all, describe what that is. So people get a different paradigm of it. And then because of the uh, the power of the work to unplug from and heal the multi-generational traumas that are stored in our own system that we keep playing out because we don't know we're playing it out. Right. Can I jump in there first, Michael? Please. (laughs) Say again. Uh, So. First of all, um, the first thing that popped in my mind is an example that I give sometimes of, like, you know, there's uh, wiring that goes from the switch on the wall over here up to the fan. And so the potential for the fan to come on and the lights to come on is there. But I have to flip the switch to turn it on. We all have the potential for anything and everything within us, you know, genetically, um, whatever. Um, But it's up to us to flip the switch on or off. And so, you know, that was the first thing that I thought of. I'm actually have been writing a book for several years now. I'll get it finished one of these days. And it's called Healing the Generations One Breath at a Time. Mm. And it uh, came to me. We do a process called Still Point Breathing. Mm -hmm. And during a breath session, it was, if you asked me if I believe in past lives, I would say no. But it felt like it was me. And I was a Native American child and had been captured by white men and and the abuse and everything that went on through my life. And when I came out of that breast session, like I had physical pain, my hips, my, well, actually, I think one of the first times that I came to you was right after that, because you had some Native American things above the table that I laid on that you were working on me. And it was like, whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) But uh, anyway, so a, a book is coming out of that experience. And, but, there are things that are passed on, just like the color of our eyes and the color of our skin, that hasn't been dealt with before, that is genetically in there. And it only comes up when you're vital enough to deal with it. So it's not like, oh, my God, all these things that my great-grandmother and grandfather did and all this, you know, I'm going to have to deal with it. Not until you're vital enough. And then it'll come up one at a time. And when it's in your face, that's what you work on. That's what you deal with as you move through life. And we've got a whole lot more choice than the world has taught us. You know, mm. we're now understanding epigenetics. As Jeannie said, the light switch is there. And when we decide to say, for instance, eat the sad diet, standard American diet, put away a fifth of scotch, that is an environmental signal that flips the switch that brings into play things of a disintegrative nature. Mm. Now, one of the foundations of, of my work comes out of Einstein's mouth, and here's what he says. 
On such things as matter, we have been all wrong. What we have heretofore called matter is energy, energies whose vibrations have been so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses. There is no matter. As you say, Lou, we live in an energetic world, not a material world. And literally, as an energy system, every experience that each of us goes through enters us as an energy and is stored holographically, my take is, in every cell in the structure, including the sperm and the egg. So when a child is conceived, they literally have all of the energetic patterns of both of their parents. And those energies are there as potentials, and there's certain behaviors that if we engage in them, throw the switch for the drama and trauma life to be lived out. And there are other behaviors that throw the switch for aliveness and joy and creativity and the human life that we're designed for comes through. And we have choices about that. And the, the, the challenge is to me that the behaviors that throw the switch for destruction in the human form make a lot of money in the world. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. they get promoted. I mean, you know, this year, we got a new year going, 3.3 million people in the world are going to die because of alcohol. 3.3 mm. million people. That's a big money business. And most people have a, a special cabinet in their homes where they keep a fluid designed for celebration. When their favorite people and their family and their friends come over, they reserve the fluids in that cabinet to serve them so everybody will have fun. And the epigenetic switch is thrown for, you know, gee, the teenager died from alcohol poisoning after that party. The fights that broke out when people went into a stupor because the inhibitors in their brain were shut off by alcohol. And, 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 but it's promoted as and approved by the whole culture because there's a lot of money in it. But it's a tragedy that, mm. that it's even presented in our world as an option. It's a tragedy. And so to start to understand those switches and the power we have to make choices to bring forward those genetic propensities or to bring forward something else mm. and to, to me – Removing the energetic patterns, genetically and otherwise, that are based in hostility and fear, make a space in this form for human life to show up. Mm. And hate and fear and rage and guilt are all corrupt data that inhibit human life. Human life, now many people say, well, Michael, what is human life? Well, have you ever held a newborn? Mm. Have you ever held newborn, Lou? Up many times, sir. So go back to one of those times, if you would, and hold. This is a question Jeannie usually asks in the workshop. Go back and hold that newborn for a second again and tap into the essence of the newborn. Hmm. What word would you use to describe, and I'll invite everybody who listens to this podcast, what word do you use to describe that newborn's essence? Uh, love and pure potential. So that's a question Jeannie and I have asked of tens of tens of thousands of people all over the globe in every culture that we've been in, which is many over the years. Everybody's answer is always the same. It's mm. always some variation on the theme of love. For me, that documents that we are love. That's it. That's the essence of the human being. But we have this generational body-mind unit that's bought into 
thought disorders based in insanity, messages that come from what we identify as a power person that we tend to buy into, and we literally generate a whole self out of that misinformation Mm. that we think we are. This is a self, if you go back to Yeshua 2,000 years ago, he says, in order for you to live, you've got to die. Mm. And, and that doesn't mean, you know, go put a bullet in your head. It means that the false self, based in corrupt data, anything to do with hostility and fear, blocks the ability to incarnate in this world, in our form, as the created essence of love that we are. You know, we, we live in a culture, we all came in exactly the same way, every one of us. And our culture has refined the skill of slapping that out of us, that experience, and then sending us out the door with a message that says, go find somebody to love you. Go find somebody to love. And we start a totally, completely false search, thinking that it's something we're going to find out there when what we need to do is collapse all of the lies of our power person, all of the messages based in hostility and fear that the world has given us, all the addictions that keep us locked in that place, and face and remove what has been building generationally in our structures for thousands of years. Mm. And by removing those corrupt energetic patterns, anything based in hostility or fear, you know that your mind is generating a construct that's false. Removing those things creates a space where active present love enters form and expresses in the world. What a uh, beautiful thank you. What a masterful job this uh, institutionalized process has done to, <laughs> to deviate sentient beings from their true path and continue living into uh, a distorted lie that causes pain and suffering, right? Um, it's incredible. It's satanic. It, it, it's, it is now, no, let's, before we buy into the Greek idea, like the Greek idea of forgiveness is totally off basis of the same about Satan. In Aramaic, Satan is a very important concept to understand. And in that word, when it was spoken in Aramaic 2,000 years ago, the word means the resistor, one who misleads. Mm. Most of the world is trapped in Satan. People are in a traumatic experience generated by their own minds, their own constructs and perceptions, and you say, well, gee, you know, I've known you for 30 years, and I've watched you go through that again and again. Did you ever think that maybe that's yours, and what do they do? Oh, no, wait a minute, wait. And then, so they're in resistance to the truth, and then they got a whole story to tell you about it's caused by them. It's about somebody else. The resistor, one who misleads. That's somebody who's trapped in Satan. Got nothing to do with the dude with the red suit of tail and the pitchfork that the Greeks made up in order to distract us from understanding the truth of how this whole thing works. So what needs to be overcome? Yeah. The resistance and the lies, the hostility and fear-based constructs of our minds that totally and completely lead us off into a, a trail that reinforces itself and keeps us in that posture. So on, on that note, sharing for the listening audience, uh, at some point I'm sure that uh, they've heard this before, uh, yet for those who maybe haven't, <clears throat> my own background on this exact story. So growing up in a family of nine uh, in a traditional flow with this, <clears throat> th- this uh, uh, filter running through the entire family, uh, as I woke up, <clears throat> what I was getting from my 
Blood family was you've been brainwashed. And when it first came at me, I was in that place of defensiveness, like, no, no, no. And then I finally set it in, like, you know what? I have. I've actually taken my brain out and scrubbed it clean from all of the filth, you know, the, <laughs> the misinformation that was put in there to keep me thinking everything, you know, the uselessness and the this and the that and the blame and the victimhood. And, and so after I, and I continue to scrub it, uh, to that awakening of going, oh my goodness, no, 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 no. I'm responsible for everything that happens in my life because of uh, the patterns that I run, especially the ones that I'm not paying attention to that I'm running because they're in the unconscious. Uh, but it's my job to go there and, and pay attention to them. And as you, will, as you both teach us, well, how do I know what that is? Just take a look at what I've created in my life. Look right? at the fruit. Yes, you said, look at the fruit you produce. 100%. And that's a great word to use, scrubbing. That's exactly what forgiveness is. Mm. In the first century Aramaic, forgiveness, you know, I've, I've spent 50 years plus searching for the answers. And the only place I have found a way to consistently and persistently scrub the mind of what doesn't belong in it was out of the mouth of Yeshua 2,000 years ago mm. when he instructed how to forgive. And then that tool was almost instantly disappeared. The, if, if we equate the word forgive with removal, now we're talking about forgiveness. And scrubbing is another great word for how do I go in here? What do I find? How do I take care of my unconscious? Because that's where my next trauma is going to come from. How do I drop into it and remove it rather than waiting for the universe to respond to the gravitational pull of that trauma in me and play it out with me again? I can directly, through choice, go inside myself, find that, and remove it, be mm. done with it. Mm. And that creative process that produces trauma is gone when I scrub my mind of it. As long as it's there, it's all going to show up in this construct. You know, we, we, we live in a, a world, another con of the world, is that I open my eyes and I see what's going on out there. <laughs> now, the biggest lie that's ever been told, well, maybe not the biggest, but one of the biggest, is that you can see something through your eyes. Mm. Energetic, you know, my background's electronics with a side study in physics, and speaking in terms of physics, the eye is a literal antenna that brings light energy in. You can't see out through an antenna. You can't pull the wires off the back of your TV and look and see what's happening in the neighborhood through the antenna on the roof. That's silly. And you can no more see out through your eyes than fly in the air. Information comes in. It's a one-way valve. The information that comes in resonates content genetically and otherwise, and then the mind produces literally a construct called the world you see. We've been tricked into believing that what we see, we see through our eyes. And we don't. We see it with our brain. My but that's reality, <laughs> Michael. Everything I see, I can prove that's it. That's exactly what it is. It's reality. And it's a replacement for actuality. <laughs> Everybody lives in their own reality totally, completely, 100%. There's an interesting quote. You know, this is something we've been teaching for years. There's an interesting quote that comes from the CIA on this topic. They did research on, and I'm just looking at my phone right now to, to find the, uh, the quote. They did research on, they've got a book you can download on their website. We actually copied it to ours because they kept moving the link uh, called The Study of Human Intelligence. And there's a chapter in it on perception. 
And here's the conclusion after spending who knows how many millions of dollars. Here's the conclusion that the CIA came to. You can download this from their site or from ours. Perception is demonstrably an active rather than a passive process. It mm -hmm. constructs rather than records reality. Perception is a process of inference in which people construct their own version of reality on the basis of information provided by the five senses. So every person, you know, there's some Harvard research that says in the time frame where 10,000 brain cells are firing, there are 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity going on, the max amount of data that goes into the construct of the mind is nine bits. We see nine bits out of 10,000 brain cells firing. And it's been estimated that in that same time frame, the actuality contains perhaps 20 trillion bits of information. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Our, our granddaughter is four, and a, she took a great interest in anatomy and physiology when she was just under three. She would sit and watch. I, I actually had a, a set of um, anatomy cards that I showed her one day. Jeannie and I showed her. And she sat with those cards. This was just before she turned three for over an hour going through them, asking questions about everything about the body. And now and since then, she'll sit 45 minutes at a crack mm -hmm. and do it two or three of them in a row watching anatomy and physiology videos. So she, we, we got her a, a, a Skeleton. Skeleton. We call him Mr. Skinny. You can take the muscles off and all the organs out. She loves to play with it, and she loves to do Play-Doh uh, copies of the body parts. She can tell you where the pancreas is and where the adrenals go and, you know, what the diaphragm is. She, she's four. She can tell you all that. So she likes to make use Play-Doh to make the parts. So a few weeks ago, she's a couple months ago, she's making some body parts. She's, Papa, I want to I watch that body video. So we turn on the TV, and, and we get the video she wants to watch. And it's a, a cartoon outline of a human form and all the organs in it. And the organs kind of fall out on the ground in order of size. And then each organ sings what it does, what its part is. So the eyes come up, and they sing, I am your eyes, I am your eyes, I see the world around you. Harriet looks at me and says, Papa, they don't understand, do they? We see, with our, we see with our brain, not with our eyes. Before she got that. And I'd never said that to her. Now, the first year of her life, you know, our radio shows five days a week, and it happened to be at her nap time. So I would be laying down doing the radio show with her on my shoulder, sound asleep, and doing the radio show through my headset. That was how I did my radio show for the first year of her life or maybe a little better than a year. But she just came up with that totally on her own. We see with our brain, not with our eyes. And that's exactly what neuroscience is telling us. You know, I mean, it's been proven. There's no question about it. And then, of course, the CIA to say it, that's pretty, pretty profound that they're actually – yeah, well, and goes the truth to the world. Well, there's the beauty of that, right? So listening to the audience, that, uh, um, that piece there where here's the CIA, right? This is an agency of the U.S. government uh, spends our tax dollars to prove, indeed, this, this higher level of this truth. Yet where is that then turned around and, and shared with the general population to support them, <laughs> to understand? No, right? Um, uh, Anybody can download it for free from their site, though. Yeah. It is there. That's well. I, that's why I wrote it, it down. I will definitely there, be doing that. Yeah. There, it's actually the the quote and the link to it is in the article I just sent you to attach to this. Excellent. Video. I'll just put it in the show so notes, and it. everybody will have access to it. 
Yeah. There's um, also a TED Talk with a gentleman named Anil Seth, A-N-I-L-S-E-T-H. And in the article. That the brain hallucinates our reality, that we make it up. So We literally create a whole world detailed. And, and again, to recognize that what our eyes show us is a hologram, and we think it's life, and we tend to base our lives on it. That's what the culture teaches us. And the truth is, there's no life in the hologram. Mm. All it is is a hologram mm. generated out of the past. And when you realize and, and that that's not meant to direct your life, then you start to remove what's in it, and the hologram changes. And, and so I was just sharing, sorry for the interruption, uh, so for the listening audience is, uh, so not only are we not seeing what's out there, right? We don't see the way the world is. We see the way we are. Mm-hmm. And, and that's distorted with all the other components that come with us. So my past experiences, my perception of those past experiences, the meaning that I gave those experiences, which, right, and it's all yet because it seems, there's, you know, there's the trick, it seems real. Therefore, that's how the world is. But it's not. It's just how I am or it's just how you are, right? And that's, if you're new to that process, that's a little unnerving to go, what? Because now it starts to pull away the fabric of how we were conditioned to, quote, unquote, see the world, show up in the world, be with the world, and interact with the world. But what what we're offering right now is freedom, right, is to unplug from that conditioning uh, and start to see clearly, maybe for the first time or at least again, um, yeah, so on the, something Michael shared earlier on, I just want to, because some people, whatever, they do or don't, uh, I, I, some people want to hear me share, and they're going, nah, I'm a little conspiracy, I'm like, hold on a second, time out. It's just follow the money, right? So I share this little thing so they can get it, which is, what's the number one money-making industry in the world, right? And they'll say something. I'm like, no, it's actually arms sale, right? Like tank, war, right? So tanks. Arms, tank, pharmaceuticals. Right. You guys know this. So, so, and so how does that industry survive, right? Peacetime or wartime? Of course, wartime. That's the, how the industry works, right? So same thing. What's the next one? So pharmaceuticals. Well, how does that industry happen with healthy society or, or quote unquote, a sick society? It needs ill people, right? So it's a completely money-driven process. And that's why the, everything of the disempowerment, to keep reminding people how weak and broken and, and how incapable we are of healing and, right? And so, that's yeah. where the money is. That's yeah. it. So, ladies and gentlemen, when you constantly pay attention to when you keep letting, uh, you know, back to what Jeannie and Michael teaches, the mind energy, when you consistently let something else program your system versus you choosing what you allow in. Right? So if you sit in front of the boob tube or, or the tradition, anything, radio stations, TV stations, whatever it is, and you're allowing their information to keep coming in, it is programming you in, uh, in the way that they want you to function and behave. And you're adding your energy to it, so you're amplifying what it is that you're watching. Exactly. The ancients you know, repeatedly said, transcend. And, mm-hmm. and that's been made up as, you'll float off in space somewhere. No. <laughs> 
put an end to the state of trance. Get out of hypnosis, is what they were saying. And we've been hypnotized by the world, and and in particular in the field of healing and wholeness. You know, when I hear what you have gone through with your form and the fact that you're sitting here talking and you get up and you can still walk is pretty amazing. And I, I could just about bet that you didn't do that through drugs. And, you know, for for me, I mean, as a naturopath, my definition of a drug is a drug is a disease disguised as a cure. Mm. If you look at the insert in the package, you'll notice there's a whole list of what they call side effects. Excuse me, there are no side effects (laughs) to drugs. They cause diseases. Now, they may, and, and they can be useful, they may actually shut down a set of symptoms so you go, I feel better, but what's the cost? What happens, you know, that energy that's been shut down is still in the system. Sooner or later, it's going to have to be dealt with. And then all of the diseases that come along with it, and they say, well, yeah, but only some people. No, everybody gets diseases from the use of drugs. Some people are more profoundly visible than others, but everybody is affected by the energetic patterns that they bring into their structures. And so, again, not saying there isn't a place for that, but when we lay drugs, pardon me, let me back up a second. Drugs are basically treatment. If we do just treatment, then we can feel better, but there's no healing in treatment. What we need to do is lay healing alongside of treatment if we need treatment. And ultimately, I think we have to become our own healthcare providers to know where to go for the support for the energetic healing that we need. Mm. And the core of every disease is there's an energy in the system is destroying the system. Mm. Forgiveness is about addressing, accessing, and removing those energetic patterns. For me, that's why they called Yeshua the great physician. He knew the core tool and presented it and almost instantly when it showed up, it was disappeared, and it became a Greek idea of letting other people off the hook because my mind is generating this. If Yeshua sat in most places today where they ostensibly talk about his work, he'd say, that's all Greek to me. <laughs> <laughs> and we need to wake up from it. Physician, heal thyself. You know, ladies and gentlemen, again, part of the, part of the – um... You know the motivation from from to keep us disempowered and ignorant, uh, as Michael was just sharing and Jeannie was just sharing. Even that's this, the power of the use of words, right? They're, it's so profound. It's and again, unfortunately, they're masters of the process in marketing uh, and in marketing any form or fashion, from finances to politics to education to religion and definitely to quote unquote healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, that simple place of well, it's a side effect. And Michael just said, there's no such thing. Open up a physics book. There's no law of cause, effect, and side effect. There's absolutely no law in the universe. There's cause and effect, period. So if you ingest something, Good uh, and, and it was meant to you know, turn your hair purple, but your liver fell out, oh, well, that was a side effect. No, that's a direct effect. It might be an undesired effect, but it's a direct effect. Mm-hmm. However, playing with the, the words, then we start to believe, oh, no, it was just a side effect. Um, and, and well, as long as we keep allowing these types of uh, mental distortions, then we keep trapped in the story. Yeah. Yes. And you go back to Yeshua, reinforcing what you just said. 
and he talks about words, and he says the power of life and death mm. is in our words. Words are literally frequencies. Mm. I mean, what we do with this voice box is a vibration, as Einstein said, vibrations so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses. This thing introduces frequencies into this form that become integrated into this form. Mm. And they're of two qualities. One of them is integrative, will build the system up. One is disintegrative, will tear the system down. Hostility and fear are always disintegrative energies. Now, the ego tries to make up stories about, well, yeah, but, you know, my rage helps me take action. So, well, okay, your rage helps you take action, but what do you suppose would happen if you're taking that action out of a connected space of love? Mm. Would it perhaps be 10,000 times more powerful? I mean, I've got a dump truck coming. We're, we're getting a dump truck that's going to come and un unload some soil here. I can, I can go unload it with a teaspoon. <laughs> and two years from now, I'll have the dump truck unloaded. I mean, I can do that. And that would be like saying I use hostility to make me take action, where – we're designed to function out of the active presence of love, and our words are key in that whole process. That makes me think of, you know, I use an example. I, I do uh, workshops with women mostly, but um, one of the examples I always use is I was raised on a farm part of the time, and back then my grandfather used uh, horses to pull the plow, and they put blinders on them. And that was so that it would follow direction and go straight and do a straight row. If it didn't have those blinders, then it could see the, you know, filly over here or the hay over there or whatever, and it would do its own thing. And I said, it's hostility and fear is like those blinders on the horse. We just, you know, it keeps us just going straight ahead and doing what we're told to do to go, you know, where we're supposed to go and all this, and we don't see the potential outside of us. And the answer to every question that we ever have is there. I mean, we have 360-degree vision, but we've got these blinders on so we don't see it. And the answer to our so-called problem might be right beside of us, and we can't see it because we've got the hostility and fear going and keeping us from seeing the whole truth. Great point, sweetie. That's it, exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. So that, that beautiful, I, I've heard it in so many different, you know, the parable uh, story, you know, whatever. The, so some mean people had discovered the source of true potential for humanity. And, you know, right, there was three of them. They said, hey, uh, you know, we got to hide these from these people because if they, if they get this, we're, we're going to be out of business. Uh, and the first one says, okay, I know. We're going to hide it on top of the highest mountain. Right? And they're like, no, that's a good idea, but eventually they're going to learn how to climb up there, and they're going to get it, and they're going to find it, and we're going to be out of business. And the other one says, oh, well, you know, we'll take it to the deepest part of the sea. Right? Well, and they're like, no, 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 no. So they're going to invent a submarine, and they'll eventually find it. We're going to be out of business. We've got to put it someplace they'll never, ever look, and they'll never find it. So they thought, and they thought, and they thought. And then the third one goes, just put it right inside of them. They'll never look there. Right? Yeah. And right how true that is. Uh, so, again, ladies and gentlemen, when you listen, this is – if I, uh, you know, if I went back 45 years ago and I was listening to, the, I wouldn't be listening to this podcast because I wasn't ready to hear what it was saying. But if I did, somebody plot me down. Just that place of like looking within. Like, first of all, what does that mean? Um, right. So let me start from here. When we incarnate, we enter form as a baby. We're crawling around and we're exploring our world. We go out into our senses, right? So I pick up the marker that I found on the floor and I bang it so I can hear it. And I, when I'm holding it, I can feel it. And I bring it up to my mouth so I can taste it and touch it and smell it. 
And once I've encoded that, boom, there goes the marker and I crawl to the next thing, right? I grab the cat and I lick it and bite it and do whatever, whatever I need to do to record this thing. And then I grab the chair and then I walk over and I'm recording my environment. And as I keep doing that over and over 24-7, I start to live out in my senses and I believe that that's where the world exists. And I forget to turn around and come back home, yeah. right? And so that's the greatest disconnect is we've forgotten that yeah. that's just all that is is strictly perception anyways. So the work is coming back home. How do we get awesome inside analogy. to do the work, yeah. right? How do yeah. I get inside to really remember and then do the work so I can then uh, so in two weeks, I have an event called Life by Design, and a core part of that work is to help people pop, right, to give them that perspective of, um, so even as, like I do, as I awaken, then I'm like, okay, and now I'm aware, but now I'm trying to make changes still within the paradigm that made the mess in the first place, which is why is this happening to me again, right, Michael's fundamental work. And now I'm wondering why things aren't changing, even though I'm aware, and that's really frustrating, or at least it was for me. Uh, so not until we really pop out of the quote-unquote matrix to go, oh, wow, now I have a clean slate to make true choices from. Right. Not trying to make them from within the confused matrix in the first place. And I Great explanation. I love that thing of the, how we extend it out into the senses. Is that copyrighted? Can I use that? <laughs> it, it, it's copyrighted now, but you can use it. It's a 5% royalty <laughs> that's a great way to say it so i don't know just how much time we've got left but i'm wondering you know where you want to go from here one of my thoughts is that it would be cool perhaps to deliver a shock to people and describe exactly how forgiveness works and what you need to do to carry actual forgiveness out that would be one direction, but I'm open to your, your thoughts on that. Uh, well, first of all, that sounds great. Thank you for even you know, pulling me down. So I just looked at the clock uh, to honor everybody's listening time. Let's, why don't we do that? Uh, so uh, as Michael and Ginny bring us into close with this, how do we actually implement forgiveness into our life? Um, we'll, we'll use that as a close for this episode, and, and we will definitely be playing some more. They, oh, yeah. might, they might not know this yet, but they're gonna have, I'm going to bug them because now they're close enough where I can actually bang on the door. <laughs> oh. We're um, happy to do this anytime. Yeah. And so, ladies and gentlemen, also listening, so in the show notes, right, we'll have links to their, to their site, to their work. Uh, it's filled with just book of amounts of content right there for the, <clears throat> their entire purpose is to get this information into the hearts and minds and souls of everybody on the planet. And that's not just a concept. It's real. I mean, if you, once you land on the site, uh, uh, whyagain.org, and again, I'll have all these as hyperlinked in the show notes, right away you'll see there's Michael's book, free for download. There's tons of videos, like free to watch and access right there. The radio show, there's, so there's tons of content that you can absorb, uh, and they also have plenty of, uh, to dive into further. Uh, uh, you know, DVDs and CDs to be able to, to consume uh, streaming content and their live courses. Yep. So there's many ways to enter the world and keep growing and learning. Uh, and there's plenty of resources that they freely give out to make sure it gets into the heart and soul and minds of uh, as many habitants on this planet to keep healing the entire spectrum. So, yes. yeah, thank you. Thank you. So please take it away. Let's... Sh how do we do this thing? Yeah. 
Well, probably out of this conversation are going to come a lot of questions, and your workshops are addressing those questions. And, you know, it takes, it takes a village. It takes all of us to get this whole, whole picture together and, and workable for people. But uh, questions will come out of it. And one of the things that we do is five days a week, we have a radio show from 1 till 2 o'clock mm. Eastern time. And it's an Internet show. People can access it on the Internet. But most people, because they've got free long distance, listen to the show on the phone. So people can call in from 1 till 2 o'clock Eastern time, five days a week, and ask questions. Mm. If you dial 563-999-3581, you'll be listening to the show. And then if people just push one on their phone, it raises a hand. Jeannie runs the control panel. She'll introduce them, and the three of us will be having a conversation. So that's available for questions on this and refinements. And, of course, the app uh, explains the whole process or gives you the facility to use the tools. And on every page of the app that Jeannie has so geniusly de designed, there's a, a button you can push. If you're at step three in the worksheet and you go, I don't understand this, type us a question, hit the button. It'll send right from the app. We'll get it. We'll answer it on the radio show, and Jeannie will send back an email that says, here's a link to the right. radio show where you answered your question. So we're here to support as much really. as possible. And really. you know, Jeannie's got the website up now, up over 20,000 pages, so there's all kinds of material there. But as far as how the forgiveness process is done, it's a shock to the mind. And, and the reason it's a shock is because we've got it backward. Hmm. Again, we think this picture is out there, and it's not. And so – a starting point to recognize how forgiveness is done is we'll ask everybody, notice that unless you're just a generally miserable person, the only time you point any form of upset, any form of hostility at anyone, including yourself, is if that individual violates a goal that you have for them. Mm. Notice that, you know, you know, if you're a reasonable person, you're pretty happy with everybody until they're not doing what you want them to do. You've got a goal for them. And this is the key way into first century Aramaic forgiveness. In the Aramaic language, the word forgive is shebag or shabak, and it literally translates. I mean, it's translated as forgiveness, but it literally translates to cancel. So the instruction to forgive is the instruction to cancel. Now, if I'm building a construct, a, a perceptual construct that you're the problem in my life, if I cancel you, that's murder. You know, not a good good place to go. If I'm building construct about myself, or canceling myself, suicide, let's, let's leave that one out. But in any given circumstance where I have a disturbance or upset, I'm always in charge of the goal that I hold. And I can always get rid of it if I choose to. And what we need to do in order to forgive is learn how to cancel our goals. And the reason for that and again, we've only got a few minutes, so this is going to be the short form. It's usually a three-hour workshop. In the notes that I sent you, uh, there's a link to it, that three-hour workshop. People can watch free anytime mm. they want. So the, this Harvard research we talked about, 10,000 brain cells are frying there, 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity going off in the brain, and perception is constructed out of nine bits of data. Now, obviously, if that's true, and it's – it's research has been around for over a half a century, and it's the most quoted research in psychological history. It's pretty solid. And when you realize that your perception is constructed out of nine bits of information, something must have selected which nine bits of information 
it was going to use out of the 10,000 firing or the 20 trillion potentially available. The selector, the driver for the process of perception is your goals. Whenever one has pained perception, pain moving in their mind or their awareness, they also have pain and trauma energy moving in their physiology. Mm. You can't separate them. You know, I have a coin here. If you look on one side of the coin, you'll see there's a, an Indian head. Hmm. You look on the other side of the coin, and there's a buffalo. Now, we look at the coin, and we say, well, um, you know, there's a head and a tail. Is there really a head and a tail, or is that just perception? Can I take the head off of that coin and leave just the tail? No, I can't. It is one singular event seen from two different perspectives, but it's one event. This body-mind nervous system is exactly the same. It's one event. We think there's a mind, and, you know, the church was involved and science was involved in doing this back, what, the 1600s. They separated it out like they're two different things. But the, the mind is like looking at the Indian on the coin. That's one perspective of this singular event, and the body is a singular a perspective of that singular event. But they're one and the same, and you can't separate them. What you do in your mind also happens in your body. And so if perception is pained, tissue is in a disease state. Mm. And what needs to happen is that dis-ease energy, that disintegrative energy, needs to be removed. To be removed, it has to be accessed directly. If I have an old trauma that I've been through 87 different times with 42 different people, that means I've had a goal, somebody's violated, that old trauma has come up, and I've made my perception of them out of that trauma, and I say, they're the problem in my life. Pain, the trauma, is going on in my physiology. What I need to do is to be able to collapse that perception. And by collapsing and cleaning up perception, we improve the quality of perception. Poor quality perception is any perception based in any form of hostility or fear. Hmm. Accurate perception is always based and fueled by active present love. And so if we're in poor quality perception, we're in pain, that means we're in a physical, in the realm where we believe in physical, that means we're in a physical disease. I need to get rid of or collapse that construct in my mind. How do I do it? Well, there's only one place I found the technology. It was put forward 2,000 years ago by this man named Yesha, and he said you have to shebag. You have to cancel the goal that drives that process. And when you cancel the goal, that construct that represents your pained physiology as some sort of emotional trauma or mental pain, that construct collapses. When it collapses, it collapses in on itself, and it creates an opening into the unconscious. Now, you know, um, Carl Jung says that ultimately what we need to do is to make the unconscious conscious. Mm. How do we do that? Every time your structure is presenting pained constructs, if you look at the goal you're holding for your object of attention, self or others, and you cancel it, that construct collapses. When it collapses, it gives you access to the underlying hidden part of the mind. When that part comes forward directly, 
rather than being projected into your brain's image of someone else, whoever you're thinking is the problem in your life, when that comes forward directly and love is present in your mind, there's a transmutation of energy. Mm. The toxic dis-ease energy is dissolved in an instant, and that's forgiveness, mm. a la first century Aramaic Yeshua. Now, when you, in our culture, see how illogical and irrational and stupid that is, I've got this perfectly good goal. I just wanted my brother to cherish me and honor me. Why would I cancel the goal for my brother to cherish me and honor me? Is it, what's wrong with that goal, Michael? Why would I cancel it? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the goal. That's a perfectly wonderful goal. Everybody should have that for everybody all the time. The problem is, if I load that driver in my mind, it accesses my trauma. And now I build a traumatic perception of my brother. But the trauma that I'm experiencing is my own. It's got nothing to do with my brother. Never forgive your brother. Never forgive another. But if you're in pain or trauma... Look for the goal that's driving the construct of your mind at the moment. Cancel it, and that thing collapses. Mm. You know, there's a, an image that I like to put out. The event wasn't very, a very happy event. It's not one that, you know, 